Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Brendan here, half of Vet Gurus with Mark, the better half of Vet Gurus, episode 202, Friday, August the 13th, Mark, Friday the 13th, 2021, which is my dear wife's birthday, Mark, <laughs> August the 13th. Um, so a good omen, Mark, not a bad omen. And well, we have, but we both have the same problem at the beginning of August, Brendan, because um, it's just been Kate's birthday as well. It, it must have been the time for parents to have beautiful children. Yes, and... I hate to remind you, it was my birthday too. Oh, bugger. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there we go. (laughs) We spoke about the the, um, looping of the intro that I have to manually turn off um, with the new software update, and I forgot about it. Yes. I completely forgot about it in the distress. How how could you forget (laughs) eighth of the eighth? How Uh, can you forget eighth of the eighth? What did you get? I oh I got a couple of things. Um, mainly, I got to sit at home with my lovely family um, <laughs> in lockdown and and have a nice takeaway pizzas we got um, for my that was sort of my um, my birthday. Well, although that was on the Friday night instead of the Sunday, and we, they when did manage to get a birthday cake for me. Um, as far as um, a couple of little bits and pieces, I got a couple of little. Little bits for um, to encourage me to do a bit more woodworking, which I haven't done for a while, so that's good. I've got a couple of little um, bits of gear, which I may review at some stage, and also a uh, a full length puffer jacket, Mark, with a hood. Oh. So um, a pretty snazzy one. So I've got the Melbourne look. Mark, <laughs> we, the Melbourne we need look, a photo. The black, the, black the puffer jacket. Yes, Brendan as a model. Well, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? <laughs> if ever you know one. So there you go. Yes, it was my birthday as well, Mark. Um, and I was waiting. I was hanging out for the text on my day <laughs> from birthday, you, and I thought, round. "Oh, he must, he must be out of, um, out of." Um, That'll be my range. Yes, and I have been. Yes. Well, I've been. You know, I've been um, chortling around um, the granite belt um, in south, central South Queensland. Um, we spent some time in Chinchilla today, and ah, um, yes. while we were there, I visited the um, Kate and I visited the uh, Cactoblastus Memorial. Um, I didn't realise this existed until I came to Chin- Chinchilla, but. Um, uh, there were three sites um, in the 1910s, a hundred years ago, um, where um, moths were imported from South America um, and bred, and they bred most successfully at uh, this station at Chinchilla, up into their millions to be released and eat the very invasive Opuntia inerta, the, the prickly pear that was uh. Um, ruining um, excellent uh Excellent cattle and um, broadacre farming country. Um, so it was an out. It's probably one of the. It was a pretty lame memorial. I have to be honest and say. Was it all moth eaten? <laughs> <laughs> you never miss a chance. Um, it was. Uh, it, it was just you know, local Lions Club just 
popped everything in. It was at the edge of the farm where it actually happened. Um, so it wasn't the big moth. <laughs> I have a big watermelon here. I'll report on that another time. Um, but um, yes, it was uh, it was worth seeing, and um, and it's nice to know that there have been biological controls, um, admittedly of an invasive introduced species, um, that were uh, uh, that were positive both for the farming industry and for our um, Australian wild environment. So it wasn't the same group that imported the cane toad, Mark? No, no, apparently more thought went into the uh, cactoblastus moth than went into the cane toad. So what sort of uh, merchandise did you purchase from the moth <laughs> merchandise centre? The only thing that was not like a, you know, a, a uh, information board was um, a, a, an example of their handiwork. Two pot, two potted cactuses, one looking pretty <laughs> healthy, and one was uh, brown and limp and dead on the ground. Um, so I, you decided, I decided not to buy those. Yes, you did, you don't have one sitting up on the front of your um, uh, on the dashboard in the car. No, we don't. No uh, nodding cactuses on the front dashboard. <laughs> yes. Uh, excellent. Yeah. It is pretty amazing. Some of the, They do make you laugh, some of these. Not that that one does. Um, some of these um, tourist centres and information centres. Uh, yeah. I think one of the good ones down our way is the, the giant worm, Mark. I think <laughs> the you've visited the giant worm. The giant worm, yes. Which is quite quite funny, but uh, and I think at one stage you could. They also had an outside sort of play worm that you could crawl through. <laughs> you know, it's like a little tunnel. Of course um, they did. Yeah, so um, it was. Yeah, it was quite hilarious. Yes. So there so you go. You should, you should for our international listeners, you should just make it clear that um, parts of your state, the proud state of Victoria, uh, is home to the largest earthworm. Um, on the planet, I understand, um, and that they can reach phenomenal lengths of 10 metres and be, well, thicker than your thumb. And um, and people, uh, uh, they often turn up when people, they hang around the roots of gum trees. So when people were clearing land, they would, you know, they don't tend to come out any other time. Um, unless you're rocking over the the gum tree and exposing the roots, so um, so it's not it's not as weird as it sounds to celebrate the largest worm in the world, although it is pretty weird. Yes, Megascoloides australis, Mark. <laughs> it is um, the the giant Gippsland earthworm. Earthworm, yes. Um, although I, I'm just I've just jumped onto the Wikipedia site for it that. Yeah, they can reach up to three metres. Oh, so. that's exaggerating. But uh, yeah, they, <laughs> average, prone to they average one metre. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in other words, they're, they're not very big at all. Um, <laughs> so there you go. Um, yes, but it's uh, and uh, it, interesting, the giant Gippsland earthworm has been exploited by the local tourist industry with an annual Kame Festival in Currumbara and a giant worm museum. There it is at Bass. Yes, the giant worm. <laughs> it almost went into you know disrepair the old giant worm museum. So I don't know whether it's still still a happening thing or not, Mark. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, we should get moving. Um, this week, well, we've got news this week, haven't we? Um, it is a bit of a uh, news week, and um, it's 
trying to catch up with some of the the curated news items that we provide to our listeners. Um, only the best news service um, providers uh, um, provide our news items, don't they, Mark? And our, our researchers are scouring the internet um, for obscure um, <laughs> topics. And I think the first one you've got is, well, it's it's – it's actually a little bit, little bit, little bit of a concern. This one is. Oh, it? it was a little bit scary when I first, um, when I first uh, scanned the headlines. The first human case of H one zero N three bird flu has been recorded in China. Um, so this is uh, from the beginning of June in Beijing. A forty one year old man in China's eastern province of Jiangsu. Um, has been confirmed as the first human case of an infection with H10N3 strain of bird flu. Um, the 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 interesting thing about this is that um, this particular uh, bird flu is considered um, a low pathogenic, relatively less severe strain in poultry, um, and it was always considered that the risk of it spreading in um, to humans on a large scale or amongst um, uh, poultry, for that matter, was relatively low. Um, but the, these stories, um, uh, just, you know, the fact that there are many strains of avian influenza present in China and sporadically some of these infect people, especially those who are working with um, poultry, um, it just does worry me that we might be headed to a, towards a, uh, um, you know, a, a, a superimposed pandemic. Um, but fortunately, this is the only case of uh, H10, H1O, H10N3 um, that has been reported globally. Um, but it still makes you feel a little bit nervous, particularly in our current environment with... Uh, yes. So. It does. It's um, just something else to make us nervous, Mark. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I'm not going to lighten the topic, Mark, um, the mood at all, because I'm going to talk about plastic. Not plastic fantastic, plastic Not plastic, pollution. Yes. <laughs> plastic in Galapagos seawater, Mark. Oh. Um, a new study by the University of Exeter the Galapagos Conservation Trust and the Galapagos Science Centre found plastic in all marine habitats at the island of San Cristobal, where Charles Darwin first landed in Galapagos and at the worst hotspots, Mark, including a beach used by the, the marine iguana. More than 400 plastic particles were found per square metre of beach and the plastic was found inside more than half the marine invertebrates studied and also on the seabed and they think it's almost well it's almost certainly it's come from um, the east facing beaches especially um, which was the pollution's been carried across the eastern pacific via the currents there mark so um, it's a concern especially with um, some of the species that we all probably um, have seen in our Attenborough um, series and some of us may have been lucky enough to see them in real life the the marine iguanas um, there's only around about 500 of them left in the wild mark and um, you know if they get full of these bits of plastic who knows what might happen with them um, so yeah it's not a particularly 
uplifting story, Mark, because um, it just reports the ongoing problem we have with plastic pollution. Well, it's interesting because I um, uh, was upset to learn before Corona, just as coronavirus was kicking off, I uh, did take a journey yes. to uh, the Antarctic. And, um, and as I understand it, um, the year before that, 2019, was the first time that uh, microplastics were recovered from some of the sites in Antarctica, which were previously absolutely pristine. So um, it is a, um, well, it's, it's a giant experiment, isn't it? We don't really know. We can assume that there's going to be bad consequences from uh, the, these plastics in the ocean, and obviously the macroplastics are going to uh, be consumed by turtles who get blocked up and die, and um, and there's going to be other um, uh, macro effects. But um, we really don't know what the uh, microplastics, the little spherules and the various broken down bits um, as they're consumed by uh, planktonic organisms and then concentrated in larger organisms. We don't know. And yes. so my article... And, well, before you jump in, beautiful segue there, Mark, but I'm going <laughs> but to... Premature. Stop that. <laughs> yes, the other, the other depressing thing about this is that, that the report at the end of this story saying the research team had won a £3.3 million grant from the UK government to invest and address the plastic pollution in the, in the Eastern Pacific. And However, the grant had been reduced by 64% um, the following year, I think, and it may even be cancelled after the official development of assistance cuts were announced. Um, sure. So, yeah, so um, there, ain't, there ain't much good news there, Mark, unfortunately. And I just really spoilt your... Beautiful segue <laughs> no, no, well, into I, into your your my, news story. My attempted segue spoilt your your um wrap uh, completion of your story. Um, but and my segue is to um research that's been done um at UQ um where the the Queensland Alliance for Environmental Health Sciences um. Uh, says a study was an important step, a particular study was an important step in understanding the potential harm microplastics in seafoods could have on human health. Um, and so uh, the study basically looks at um, the concentration of uh, various plastics, particularly the PVC, polyvinyl chloride, uh, plastic polymer, as well as um, the most common plastic in use today, polyethylene. Um, and um, and unsurprisingly, given our previous discussions, um, they were found in, well, I can't tell you about. I've looked at the, um, in this article, they list the uh, total plastic concentrations in milligrams per animal or yeah not know. sure uh, but definitely um they were able to measure quantities of these plastics in um uh, consuming uh, species that are consumed by humans including prawns oysters crabs and uh sardines uh, being filter feeding hordes of uh fish um they they uh were maybe 10 times as much uh, um, 
of these plastics in them as in the other species. Um, the UQ team is is over over the moon um, that this is a major step forward, being able to find and quantify the plastic in seafood that's consumed by people, um, and uh, and the the. Uh, now they need to do some more. Now that they've got these units, they can do more work and determine at what level of microplastics uh, human danger to humans begins to happen. Um, like I said before, I think it's a giant experiment where we're just getting the basic information. I, I have, a, like you said before, um, we've obviously been putting all these news stories off because I don't know. It's all a bit depressing to think that we're going to have consumed all this plastic and then find out it has hormonal effects or uh, carcinogenic effects or um, who knows what. Yes, um, milligrams per gram of tissue, Mark, uh, uh, is, is the unit. Um, I just looked that up. Good work. Um, yes, it's not, um, it's not encouraging news, is it? Um, so I think I need to lighten the news a bit and talk about that it's common for pets to catch COVID-19 from their owners. That brightens things up. I found this an interesting study. Researchers at Utrecht University in the Netherlands studied dogs and cats of people who had tested positive for COVID-19. And a mobile vet clinic visited the homes of owners who tested positive in part in the past two to 200 days and they took oropharyngeal and rectal swabs and blood samples from their cats and dogs presumably not from their owners as well and they used pcr test mark and some 156 dogs and 154 cats were tested in total six cats and seven dogs had positive pcr tests and 31 cats and 23 dogs tested positive for antibodies and some of the owners with the positive pets agreed for them to undergo a second round of testing and all 11 animals in that second round tested positive for antibodies confirming that they had COVID 19. so there we go. For pets in 40 of out of 196 households had antibodies for the virus. A study revealed that COVID-19 is highly prevalent in pets of people who have had the disease. And other other studies show that that um, basically the most likely route of transmission is from the human to the pet rather than from the other way around with them, Mark. So... What do you think about this, Mark? And, and do you see a future when we vaccinate our dogs and cats for COVID nineteen or against COVID nineteen? I think that the key thing here is that there is no evidence that um, that mm -hmm. the animals develop yes. an infection which casts off virus um, and allows it. You know, they are obviously. Um, uh, reacting to the virus and developing antibodies. They have the virus, the PCR confirms they have the virus, but um, it doesn't, from my understanding, it doesn't look like they carry, that they um, uh, um, pass enough to the environment that it's going to be a source of infection. So and I don't I think, think we're going to think they didn't. And I don't think they reported any of the dogs or cat who's became unwell from it as well. Um, I think that was that yeah. was my understanding as well. Yes, yes. So the answer's no. No, the answer is definitely no. 
So what have we got, Bart? You've got something else. Um, well, while we're on the vaccine topic, yes. you're loving my segues today. Perfect. While we're on the vaccine topic, um, uh, there's news to report um, about a study published on the 26th of May this year in Nature where the first successful attempt to induce um, immunity against a trypanosome parasite was affected. Um, this particular process of immune protection, this form of vaccine, has long been thought impossible because this class of parasites, which causes, you know, that whole series of, um, of diseases, the animal African trypanosomiasis, um, as well as Chagas disease and uh, sleeping sickness, um, uh, diseases transmitted by the tsetse fly, um, the, the, uh, the, the likelihood of being able to vaccinate for um, this protozoal infection um, has been considered very, very unlikely because uh, of the complex nature of the proteins on the surface of the organism, plus the fact that they actually have a uh, process of juggling those proteins, of changing them up so that um, they're constantly changing and preventing the host antibodies from recognizing the pathogen. Um, and so it was largely thought impossible to vaccinate against trypanosomes. But um, scientists at the Wellcome Sanger Institute um, have done the typical genome analysis um, to identify 60 cell surface proteins, um, and then they did a series of tests to identify one named invariant flagellum antigen from T. vivax, or more trendily, IFX. Um, and this uh, vaccinating against this cell surface protein was observed to confirm immunity against infection in almost all mice vaccinated for at least 170 days after experimental challenge. Um, this is um, big news, Brendan. This is big news. Those diseases, first of all, are part of, you know, they, they render big parts of Africa um, they're a big factor that contribute to poverty in those parts of the world. So if this ends up being a, um, a realistic cost-effective disease prevention, it's going to make a huge difference. And, um, of course, it also leads us to think about the possibility that uh, that this these does, the related trypanosome diseases in humans might also lend themselves to... Uh, um, to uh, vaccination. So this is a big step um, and welcome news. Yes, it would be um, pretty amazing if it um, does work, Mark, and the, or even if it only helps partially because it, I think they had some of the figures there, didn't they, in that article? I'm just trying to find out how many people um, are affected by these. Um, at least 6 million people living in the endemic areas um, potentially life-threatening yeah 65 million people remain at risk um, wow so it's yeah it it's one be, of the uh, things about um uh, working on it's that whole one health thing isn't it um that you can't predict how your research as a veterinarian or on some animal disease might um might make a difference to human health either indirectly by um, lessening, you know, improving production so that there's greater human health because they have better food to eat, or maybe even more directly like this, where um, 
where uh, a vaccine that works for animals might lend its technology to um, to help um, some of those six million people that are aff- uh, affected. Um, and uh, yeah, I like good it. Good on them. Good on them. Great stuff. That is a that is a um, a plus. A very uplifting uh, news story, Mark. My last one's a good one, Mark. I love this one. Um, a partial skeleton has been found revealing the world's oldest known shark attack, Mark. A man who was ripped apart by a shark 3,000 years ago. So, um, um, and just off Japan's coast, and they've uh, the skeleton there, Mark. A partial skeleton, which was obviously. The excavated well partial yeah it's actually interesting the way they um, the way they report it here um at a village cemetery near japan's sito inland sea has revealed the grisly scenario mark um he represents the oldest known human victim of a shark attack says the archaeologist with the radio date in place in his death from 3391 to 3031 years ago remarkable precision yeah, it's um they got it down to to one year there. Yes, so apparently the man's um they've the, the they documented at least seven hundred ninety gouges, punctures, and other types of bite damage, mainly confined to the man's arms, legs, pelvis, and ribs. See that sentence? There, there's no sentence where the end part, <laughs> man, man's arms, legs, pelvis, and ribs, fits with confined to. Yeah. The wrong word. <laughs> yes, yes. And they, then they did a 3D model, Mark, um, of the injuries to indicate the victim first lost his left hand, <laughs> tried to fend off the shark, and ensuring the bite severed major leg arteries rapidly leading to death. And his mates must have picked him up, Mark, because after the man's body was recovered, his mutilated left leg was detached and was placed on his chest when he was buried. Uh, I didn't want to dig big hole. <laughs> so I shouldn't be laughing, but yes, it is. Um, it, it reads very funny, this article. I'm sorry. <laughs> it tickled my fancy, Mark. Um, so there you go. Um, the If only he knew he was going to go viral in 2021 <laughs> as he got ripped apart um, and had his 790 gouges um, from the shark attack. Um, and um, at least, well, it, and the final line, it, it, you know, they have that, at least they do the proviso at the end, but unprovoked shark attacks, Mark, would have been incredibly rare as sharks do not tend to target humans as prey. So we need to remember that. An unfortunate man, um, an unfortunate man, um, and but do, at least what do you I, think about? I was going to ask you about um, uh, numerous shark teeth found at some uh, German sites suggest the sharks were hunted. Mm. I don't know that. I don't know that I believe that. The presence of the sharks shed their teeth all the time on a regular basis. Yeah. So maybe, uh, what do you think they're using those? Teeth as you know, instruments, um, implements, um, oh, for, or decorations, know, yeah, or yeah, yeah, jewelry, or yep, I think, um, yep. I don't know that I automatically see the connection with shark. To, like, if they'd found other bits of shark, maybe yes. they were hunting them, but shark teeth are common and not necessarily always associated with the shark, yes. 
as always, Mark, we get to the bottom of these stories and we don't take them on their face value. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, well, I think with that, Mark, we've we've um, covered a pretty quick um, podcast this week, but we wanted to catch up with a few of the a few of the um, important news stories. As, well, it's as so you've important, just so important to do that because we definitely don't want our massive team of researchers to feel like we are ignoring the efforts they put in. So, um, as we build up that little bank, it's always good to get to the point where we discharge those responsibilities. Yes, yeah, so and my Dropbox account gets filled up with all these news articles, Mark, and I have to clear them out <laughs> periodically as well. So, I think with that, we will talk to you all next week, and thank you for listening.